All healthcare is delivered through relationships. This is the key statement from this episode of Operate with Zen and highlights that effective communication is a key component of delivering excellent patient care. Marissa Theophanides is a urologist at Montefiore in the Bronx and an expert in communication skills. She's certified by the Academy of Communication and Healthcare, which can be found at achonline.org, whose motto is better communication, better relationships, better care. In this podcast, we help you understand that communication is a skill, a skill that can be taught, practiced, and approved upon, just like throwing a suture or writing a clinic note. Dr. Theophanides lays out a framework to improve your clinic communications that's rooted in mindfulness, setting an agenda, creating space for effective communication, and assessing understanding highlight the mindful principles of intention, presence, and non-judgment. There's a lot of practical knowledge in this discussion, and it promises to make your clinical interactions and your life better. Enjoy. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I have struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Operate with Zen. Today, I've got the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Marissa Theophanides. Marissa, introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, everybody. Yes, so my name is Marissa Theophanides. Um, I'm a urologist in the Bronx, currently working at uh, Montefiore Einstein. Um, And yeah, I'm really excited to be here today to chat with you about a topic I'm very passionate about. Yeah, so I had the great pleasure of meeting Marissa through kind of a faculty retreat and things that were going on there. But then she came and spoke to us about effective communication. So vital to what we do, so important. And like many things on this podcast, not addressed probably with its with the full attention that it deserves. So talk to us a little bit about effective communication, just kind of big, broad strokes. Why is it so important for doctors? Well, I think you can't, I mean, obviously all healthcare, like, occurs in the context of relationships and how we communicate. Like the whole thing just doesn't function unless that's happening. Um, and I, you know, whether it's talking to patients, talking to people you work with, like how institutions like in, communicate with the communities they serve. It's, it's, it's pretty much, I think the, 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 the glue of like what holds healthcare together. And I, a big part, and I'm sure, Many folks in medicine, you know, when you when you a little kid, if that's when you first started thinking about it, like when I did, like the idea of connecting with people and helping people was like the real draw to the, like the field of healthcare. Um, and I think that um, it, you know, focusing on that and you know, bringing healthcare back to good relationships and good communication is key to getting back to the essence of what it is. Yeah. And I'll go back to med school for a second. I'm trying to remember my med schooling. Um, which was long longer ago than I want to admit to. But you know, I remember fourth year we had, or actually probably preclinical years, we had some kind of introduction to 
actors who were patients and some kind of supervised conversations with a little bit of feedback. As we progress through, we get some observed kind of patient interactions with a little bit of feedback. It felt more like checking the boxes than effective communication teaching. What was your experience like through training? Yeah, mine was very similar. I mean, we had courses and I I have to say that, um, you know, that there was a a woman um, who I think she's, she's, moved up in the chain, but she taught a, a class for us. Her name was Luba Konikopasek. And I won't forget because I, a lot of my co- colleagues had a very eye rolling reaction to these classes about the touchy feely aspects of medicine, but she did such a good job of actually introducing the concepts and sort of weaving it into our curriculum. But I do agree. It's one of these things where when ACGME is involved, it's like, it almost feels like a little like checkboxy part that we have to kind of go through and doesn't become I think it's something that needs to be just more of your everyday and just part of what you do unless a like a specific task or educational task that you have to complete. But I think med schools are are getting better now uh, as well in residencies as well as a testament to what you guys have going on and the excellent curriculum you guys have developed for the professional development. I think that um, it's something that's becoming more forefront. And um, I think that it's it's making we're making progress, but we're not 100 percent there yet. So let's get into it a little bit. Let's, you know, what are some of the big, let's get the pitfalls. What are some of the big pitfalls you see with effective communication? And I'm going to lead in by saying, you know, one of the big take homes I got that I got when, when you spoke to us, and this has been said in multiple times, but it really resonated the way you spoke is because I never thought of it in a medical context before, but all communication is about what are you trying to say and what is the other person receiving, mm-hmm. hearing or taking in? Yeah. And I never really thought of medical communication that way uh, in, in that context. So that was a pitfall for me. And I think just framing that a little different helped me immediately once I, you know, once I walked away from your kind of uh, approach. But tell us, what are some of the big pitfalls we see where where people fall short? Well, I think it, it's several places. And I think that part of it is not on us as, as you know, as clinicians, but because I, I think we're put in a system um, that is not conducive to natural communication that we would have. Like, let's say you and I just like hanging out and like getting to know each other. Like we're under a lot of um, time constraints. And if you're not out there, whoever you are, wonderful. (laughs) I'm very jealous, but but everybody's very busy. And whether it's at work and at home and people's minds are in a million different places at once, I think that can really fracture the, the communication and the relationship aspect of this. So I think one major pitfall is, um, you know, I, I think that folks really get into this pattern of assumptions, um, which is a, a big thing. And I don't think we talked about this much when I spoke with you guys, but we, we get into patterns when we see a, a specific diagnosis, um, you know, we start talking to a we dive into an HPI and start getting information. We're kind of just going through the motions. And I think we really miss out on a lot of what is really going on in terms of the patient's expectations, the patient's, um, you know, personal story. Like, are we even meeting that patient where they are in terms of understanding? Um, so I think it's it's very easy for us to get into these sort of rote cycles that we've just conditioned ourselves with just for the sake of, you know, getting through a visit in 10, 15 minutes. Um, and I think that's the biggest pitfall. And I don't think it's, you know, anybody's fault. Everybody wants to, you know, be nice and have a good, you know, commu- like a good connection with people. But I do think the system puts some constraints that, you know, forces people into these kind of habits um, that just get, you know, kind of reinforced over time. Yeah. 
And I was going to try and wait till later in the podcast to get into the kind of mindfulness spin, but we're there already, right? I mean, this talks about being present and being present with not just our patients, but that specific patient in that specific moment. Yeah. And I think that this is, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm very into the mindfulness, obviously, and it was, <laughs> I, you know, with my yoga background and everything else, this is a huge part of, you know, I think that much of the communication and our interactions and all this really a big focus has to be on, uh, you know, working on ourselves um, and how we um, treat ourselves, how we give ourselves space, how we stay present. And what I think is interesting about this, there was a great book um, in terms of, you know, the aspect of how we're communicating and where mindfulness, you know, comes into that. There's something, a book called The Charisma Myth by um, a woman, Fox Caban, I think is the, is the name. And this idea that, you know, some people are just good at communicating and are very charismatic. Um, and the, the fact is, is that it's actually a skill that you can sort of um, learn and you can actually become a very good relationship builder and communicator. And a big part of it and three things that she brings up, one of them is being present. And it, it, from a, from a, within like seconds, a person can tell whether or not you're present, right? So if you're not there 100%, it can really um, change the dynamic of the interaction. Um, and that's just something I think it's it's so key. And it, I know it's hard as like a as a mom and you know, all these things like I'm, you know, sometimes you're in that trap of like, okay, like, is clinic going to finish in time before like camp lets out and all these things. But if you get into that mode, people pick up on that. And, and it's really, um, it's the sub, like those, those sort of subconscious cues that we're sending out when we're not present that, um, you know, people really do, you know, pick up on. Yeah. I think it's a incredibly powerful and strong point. We all see this and we've all been, we've all done it and we've all had it done to us. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're having a conversation with somebody who's really into what you're saying or, and they make you feel like the center of the universe and that's yeah. incredible. And yeah. in a medical setting, when you're scared about, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, in my world, cancer, somebody else's world, you know, a benign process, something that's really affecting quality of life. When you're really in the moment with that person, they know it and they feel it and they really appreciate it. Yeah. And I think when you give somebody 100% of your time, and this goes into the 100% of your focus, this goes into that whole, you know, time trap and the stress of, you know, moving through a clinic or, you know, getting through rounds or whatever it is, you ultimately will spend less time when you feel it, when somebody feels like they're giving you, you're giving them your, their, your full focus, you know, it, it's going to be, people are going to keep talking and they're going to keep trying to, to get you to be um, in, you know, in it with them. So if, if people don't feel like you're listening or you're not, you're, they're not getting their point across, they're going to keep repeating or finding ways to try and engage you until they feel like they've done that. And, and it's remarkable when you really, stay present and you tune in to meeting the patient where they are, how efficient and quickly um, it actually can be. Yeah. And I found this an extremely easy skill to teach and particularly, you know, med students will come around in clinic and it's become one of the more common things I point out and I say, Hey, listen, you're doing a great job of listening, but you interject a lot. Next time you have a patient interact, just try not interjecting. Just let them finish their thoughts or their sentence. See how that feels and th- see how the tenor in the room changes. And I'll tell you what else that's done is made me realize when I interject Yeah. A- and by pointing it out and helping just being, once again, mindful or thoughtful of these processes, it is a skill. And being able to listen with your mouth shut and your mind open is not so yeah. easy. 
It's not. And we, I mean, the data suggests that we're really bad at it, right? It's like seconds before we start to like interject with people. And conversely to that is that people don't talk forever. Like the, the data suggests that it's about like 90 seconds, which is when you try and talk for 90 seconds on your own about whatever it is that you want to talk about with the uninterrupted, it actually feels like a very long time. So I don't think many people are actually going that far. So I think being really mindful of that and how we listen. And I think that sometimes people interject in an effort to maybe try and establish a connection or to show that their, their knowledge or their skill, but in reality, um, quiet listening um, and, you know, active listening does a, a better job at that than, than what we've, you know, kind of reflexively do. Yeah. The, the two skills I've learned from mindfulness training that have really helped me with patient communication. The first is just, as I said, just being quiet and just paying attention to people. And the other one is reflecting back sometimes yeah. say, Hey, I'm picking up this. I'm picking up sadness. I'm picking up worry. I'm picking up whatever it may be. Is this accurate? Um, and you can even do it with factual information. Oh, I'm, I heard your CT scan was on this date and reflecting that back. And that gives, I think, more of a meaningful interaction with patients and has really been helpful. Well, I think, and you know, the, the, the reflecting back and the naming of the emotion, which is the one thing you brought up, which I think is huge. And I think that if you walk away with one skill, it, it is that like being able to um, and sometimes it can get you into trouble. Like if you're not good at reading emotions and you're like, you seem angry, they're like, I'm not angry, like, you know, and it's fear or something else. Um, but, you know, as you start to feel more confident about being able to um, pick up on those things. It is, the, I think, the number one skill in terms of being able to deal with any kind of difficult interaction um, and, you know, talking about dealing with, um, you know, maybe angry patients or a difficult, you know, an argument that you're having with another staff member about something, uh, whatever, in your personal life, being able to, um, I, A, identify it. B, name it out loud so the person knows that you're actually on the same page as them is like an immediate diffuser of, um, you know, any kind of issue that's going on. Um, and if somebody's sad or upset or nervous, it really makes them feel like you're you're there with them. And I think that's that's huge. And that's one skill that um, if like you're going to do anything, I, I think that's that's huge. And the reflecting back too, um, there is a the, the whole concept of mirroring um, is another huge um, part of, I think, sort of rapid rapport building, which is critical in like this time crunched environment that we practice in. Um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Never Split the Difference by uh, Chris Voss. It's a, a book on negotiating, nothing to do at all with like medical communication, but so many amazing pearls for like life communication. <laughs> it's actually fascinating. He's a, a hostage negotiator. <laughs> And the whole book is, um, you know, how to create this rapport so that you could, you know, negotiate hostage situations, but they translate over amazing to business and personal, um, uh, you know, aspects of communication as well. And one of the primary skills he discusses is this whole concept of mirroring. So when, you know, the last couple of words that somebody says in their sentence, just repeating those back um, can you know, subconsciously create that immediate rapport, which will be helpful in terms of, you know, moving things forward and also, you know, connecting with the people that you're talking with. I'll, I'll diverge for a second. I have not read that book, but my favorite communication book is, um, I'm looking right at it, Crucial Conversations. Mm. Crucial Conversations is a really good one. If you haven't read it, it's, it's been updated a bunch of times now. Super helpful with every 
communication aspect you have in your personal life and your private life uh, at work with patients, really good about, once again, kind of effectively communicating, building rapport, making sure your message is sent and received. So I'll, yeah. I'll just throw that out there. But let's get into let's get into some of these skills. You know, we talked yeah. about rapid rapport building. We talked about active listening and reflection. What are some of the skills and how can people work on these things? And I just want to say, um, sorry, I, before we get into that, where we talked about calling out emotions and you mentioned that you may not be good at this. You may not be good at this and it can be a real challenge, but the way to get better is to try. Is to do it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And even like, if you get it wrong, like you yep. said, oh, you seem really angry. No, no, no. I'm I'm more frustrated. You're still building rapport with that patient because you're they're recognizing that you're trying to acknowledge who they are. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can't be afraid to just try and throw it out there. And, and over time, you know, some people are just so naturally empathic and, you know, that's great. And they can pick up on those things, but for some it's, it's a challenge. Um, and I think that um, just like you said, just doing it is an amazing way to just build that skill. Um, and there's endless opportunities in our day-to-day -day interactions to do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Sorry. I side railed it for a second. Skills. What, you know, what, what are some of the skills we can work on? You know, what are some of the things that you teach and you like to, to work on with residents, trainees, whoever it may be, faculty? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's um, kind of, uh, you can kind of break it down into like three, uh, three steps, let's say. Um, I am uh, under the training of the American uh, Academy of Healthcare Communication. Um, and uh, that's, you know, a, a program that we're working um, to sort of start implementing here at Montefiore specifically to um, work on our communication skills and how our, our you know, our patient experience. And, and um, so, yes, uh, in terms of the specific skills uh, that we or that I kind of try and instill or, or, or try and work on for myself to make things more efficient and also to improve the patient experience as well as my own, um, fall under the, the teachings of the Academy of Communication and Healthcare, which is a program that we are implementing here at Montefiore um, in the coming year. And um, basically it breaks it down into three steps. So kind of how we open the interview um, and negotiate how we're going to interact with patients and then really exploring the patient story, which is huge in terms of how we meet patients where they are. And then, you know, how we close out our visits to make sure that patients really understood us. Right. Um, and I think that these are all things that we kind of take for, for granted at times um, and don't necessarily focus on, but they are very, very small tweaks that can actually um, make a huge difference in you know, how patients perceive our interactions. Um, so in terms of the first step of it, it's really like how we create the rapport. So like I mentioned, you know, just like how you greet people. And, um, you know, I think it, uh, one thing that I was taught that I think that I never really did you know, overtly, but it's such a small gesture, like just asking somebody if they're comfortable uh, and it's um, such a quick, easy thing to do. Like, are, are you, oh, I, it feels a little chilly in here. Are you okay? Or like it, when we, when we see our kidney stone patients and they're like just doubled over on the exam table, like, oh, you look very uncomfortable. Like, what can I do to make you feel more comfortable? And that may mean like lying on the exam table throughout the entire visit, but, you know, having, um, you know, putting that out there for somebody to take advantage of um, immediately sets a great tone. Um, and that's something that I now do with every patient visit. And it is very well, um, you know, received. And 
Another thing is, and not everybody is good at this, and I think this is also just a practice thing, just like the small talk before the big conversations, right? So um, whatever it may be, you know, one thing is a big joke around here is the parking in the Bronx. <laughs> and almost everybody has like a little parking or logistical story in terms of, you know, getting to clinic or whatever it is. And um, even something as benign as the weather. I'm, I love pointing out things in people's outfits, school shoes, school shirts, like just something to kind of, you know, set the tone and make people feel uh, comfortable. Um, and one thing that I think uh, is not something that I always did that I found really uh, helpful now is kind of just setting expectations in terms of you know, what our time uh, limitations are. If you're on call and you think that the hospitals or the OR or somebody's going to be calling you, like let people know that like that might happen. Um, so then the the interruptions when they happen feel less intrusive. And these are all like very little things that don't take more than a nanosecond on your part to just be able to kind of set a stage um, for, you know, a, a, good, a good relationship moving forward um, in a very sort of quick way. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit when when you visited our group, but you know, I always find myself doing the small talk at the end of the conversation and I think that's a little bit specific to my the cancer practice. I just, you know, a lot of times you'll see the anxiety on people's faces and they just want to get the business out of the way. So we jump into the business and it's, you know, I'm really sorry you're here to talk about cancer or or a suspicion of cancer or whatever it may be. And then at the end it's, all right, well what do you do? What's your family do? What do you like doing, you know, when when you're not talking about cancer or whatever it may be? Yeah. Um, and I know it's not the way you teach it, but I found that to be incredibly valuable in building rapport, especially in somebody who very often you're going to end up operating on. Yeah. I think, um, in certain, obviously like the, 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 the timing and how you, where you do these skills and all of that, like, I don't think the, the, where, when you do it is just as important as just doing it right so like I, I agree like if somebody's coming in and they're they've got their stack of papers with their pathology report or whatever it is like it's hard to be like hey like did you catch the the Phillies game last night you know like people are just not they're not ready for that um and I think once you've um you know created a space where um you can actually diffuse some of that energy and I, I think people still will walk away with that feeling of comfort and collaboration, you know, even if it's done at the end, it doesn't matter. You've done it. And like that, that relationship is being built. Yeah. And I learned that, uh, especially to John Gerhardt, who was one of the pediatrologists at, at Hopkins where I trained, he, patients would come back for their annual visits for years and not really have anything medical to go over. And he'd get the medical stuff over in about 10 seconds. And then he always remembered their family or whatever it was, summer camp, whatever was going on in that kid's life where they were thinking about now going to college, even though we operated on them 13 years ago or whatever it may be. Yeah. And people loved him for that. Yeah. His medicine and surgery were great, but people loved him for that. And I think it's a great way to build relationships too. So especially when you have the shorter conversation, deliver the CT scan and the results, Hey, cancer free, you're good. But then sit there and just spend a few yeah. minutes. There's nothing more offensive than just also just delivering news and then walking away. Yeah. And I feel like we're so um, it's it's so easy now too to just make little sticky notes um, that you know the other day I had somebody who I knew that just like loved swimming and like it literally was a sticky note on my thing that just said like big time swimmer and you know like and that was you know I had very little to say in terms of oh wow like your surveillance sano looks great but like 
you know, it's summertime. Like what you've been swimming indoors, outdoors, like, how's that going? And like, she lit up. Right. So I think it's just those little things that, you know, can make such a huge difference. Yeah. That's a good one. You know, David Keynes talks about the, uh, the sticky notes a lot in his, one of his epic hacks. I've gotten a little bit more into them. I used to just put all that information right in the note. And Mm -hmm. for some people, now that everything's released and they read all of their notes, oh, he, you know, he or she was really listening to me. They picked up the fact that I'm an engineer and my daughter's into this and whatever it may be. And some things are less appropriate for the medical record. And those are the ones I put in the sticky note. But if it has anything at all pertinent, I put it right in their notes too, because they're going to, re- a lot of people will read it and actually see what you yeah. wrote and thought about them. Yeah, it's a different um, a different world in terms of access to the actual notes themselves. And it's, I, I think it's, it can go both ways. You know, I think in terms of some people may not want certain things and, but it, it but I think like you said, it actually is a, a way to show that you were in fact listening. Yeah. All right. So now you, we talked about setting the agenda. This is setting yeah. our intention in a, in a mindfulness perspective, right? We've 100%. set an intention. Yep. What's our goal with the, with the patients? What do we want to achieve together? All right. Next step, creating space. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the creating of the space is also just so, go, so much goes into that, right? Like now that we have computers and you gotta, you gotta get everything into the Epic at the same time and you're, you know, typing away and all these things. I think you just have to, again, going back to being mindful, like being mindful about how you're set up. Right. And that's the, the, the space creating, like, you don't want to be, you don't want to have a computer or your, uh, you know, in between you and a patient or you're back to a patient at any point, like all these things, the body language of that is just so closed off. Um, and is going to really, you know, work against you if you're trying to establish a relationship with somebody. Um, I think a big challenge, you know, it's very easy to move a chair or move a computer out of the way. I think a big challenge is um, when we're using uh, interpretive services, uh, which is something that's very common here. Um, Thankfully, like I I speak Spanish and a big part of my patient population is um, Spanish speaking. Um, But if I, and I, 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 I really feel for my colleagues who don't speak Spanish when I have to use an interpreter for Creole or Mandarin or something else, because it can be really challenging to navigate um, those conversations and still maintain the essence of that, like, I am here with you and, you know, like we're doing this together and create the same kind of rapport. Um, but it can be done. And I think that that we have to really sort of hunker down on, on how we're using those uh, services when we do. I think, you know, making sure that you're speaking in short sentences and speaking exactly as though you would if you were speaking in English to somebody and always looking at the patient and not at the computer or the phone, whatever kind of device you're using. Um, Because it can be, I think a lot of times patients when they're, um, you know, don't speak um, your language can feel already feel a little bit marginalized by the system, right? In many ways. Um, And the data would suggest that those are, those are actually that, that is, that's real. People, do feel like they're not getting necessarily the same care. So I think how we interplay with that is also really important to consider. Um, And also gauging, you know, how people, like where people are at in terms of their health literacy and all of that. So you're actually tailoring your conversation to a level where people are gonna be able to take in that information you're trying to convey. That's great. And I think, you know, once again, this is the presence part of the mindfulness interaction, setting mm-hmm. up the space, setting up the, your physical space so that you can be more present with someone. There's less distractions and interactions mm-hmm. and set things up in your favor, right? Don't struggle against construction noises and, a you know, a 
busy you yeah. know, office, put yourself in a quiet space where you can have the proper interaction with a patient. Otherwise you are setting both of yourselves up for failure. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. And then the, the last part in your kind of three part frame is assessing understanding and kind of bringing home the, the message. So what are some of the skills you talk about there and how can we, how can we better do that part? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, before you even close the visit, I think in terms of like one, you know, one big piece too, that I want to make sure we talk about is like how we sort of explore where our patients are. Right. So I think that um, you can't meet somebody where they are unless you know where they are. Um, And I think that, you know, how we going back to the assumptions and how we kind of um, put, you know, certain diagnoses and and patient populations in categories, um, it's so important to kind of get the patient's story in terms of why they're there and what is going on with them. Um, and I think that, and and that's something as easy as an, an open-ended question. Like I think patients really are. And I think we, you know, we're trained, we have so much training and we think we're the experts at everything. And we, we are to a degree experts in certain, you know, parts of our fields and, but patients really are the experts in their experience. Right. So it's like, they, they know how they feel. They may have, they may have ideas about what's causing their symptoms that we would have never thought about um, or fears that we would have never thought about nor addressed if we didn't, you know, try and delve into that aspect of it. And a very simple thing is just to ask them, like, what do you think, like, why do you think this is happening or what, like, what do you think is causing X, Y, Z symptom? Um, and you may be really surprised to um, see what comes out in terms of, you know, let's say like, oh, you know, I don't know, my uncle had prostate cancer and, you know, he had the same urinary symptom and it's something that wouldn't have necessarily come out, um, you know, in an interview and you can address that fear and kind of, you know, make sure that you're addressing all the things and meeting the patient's expectations that you may have not otherwise even known to do. Um, and I think that's, that's huge um, as understanding that people come with their own ideas and expectations and we have to make sure we understand them um, before we get into the nitty gritty clinical stuff that we want to get out of the, of a conversation. That, that's such an important message. I want to highlight it right away now and then highlight it again at the end is, that, you know, patients are expert in their experience, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they know what's going on with them and we can certainly try and give them a scientific understanding of that, but we don't know who they are at their deepest core and we can work to expand that. I think that's huge too. um, When you're trying to help people make changes, right? Like healthy changes and all of that. And there's like a whole, if you're into the idea of like motivational interviewing and which is another you have to know where people are and why what their why is or their what their motivations are um, to be able to help them right and i think that um they're very easy it's a very easy bit of information to get from people it's just a matter of making sure you're asking it's great super powerful and really simple stuff that yeah goes a lot of it goes over our heads a lot and we just we get so wrapped up in our days and what we're doing that we forget sometimes just to ask these little simple questions. Yeah. All right. So now we've asked questions. We've created space, set an agenda. Are we ready to assess understanding yet or where are we? Yeah, I think I think that it's, I know for me, I, for so many years, I was so guilty of the whole spiel thing where it's like, okay, you have a kidney stone. Let me for like in these two minutes, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about your kidney stone and like what the surgery is going to be like, these are all the different surgeries and, and like, okay, 
thanks for listening. Now, what what, what procedure do you want? <laughs> you know? And it's like, <laughs> it's it really, it's become almost like when I think back to how I was interacting with people, it's almost crazy to me that like, I was doing that. And I, and I, I feel so, there, I wish there were so many things I could go and take back in terms of like, you know, the deer in headlights that I didn't necessarily pick up. And, you know, patients want, they don't want to make you feel like you're uh, not doing a good job. So very rarely, if it will, will somebody, if you ask them, oh, like, do you have any questions? They, they don't, they often say no, just because they don't want to, you know, sort of disappoint you in many, in many scenarios. Um, and, you know, not that your explanation, they don't want you to think your explanation was bad or whatever it is. Um, they, they, all the data suggests that people will not ask or they will not, you know, continue to go down um, the asking pathway. Uh, and I think that the idea of sort of breaking things down uh, and and making sure people understand what you're getting and it's a very easy thing to do but it was it's not something i was ever doing um so i think it's a it's a really important way to end a, a visit in in terms of making sure that they're getting all the salient things at that of the conversation and that you feel comfort you know confident that the patient's going to walk away and it's going to be um you know, a, a safe outcome or the outcome that, you know, you both desire. And that's something that is pretty easy. Uh, and it's actually nurses do such a good job of this. I, I, at some point in their curriculum, they just get this training and it's really, and it really is effective. And it's just the whole concept of like the teach back, like, okay, I've told you a bunch of things. Like, can you just tell me in your words, or what are you going to tell your spouse later just to assess that they actually got the points you're trying to get across? Um, again, something just takes 10 seconds and it's so easy and it'll give you right there either you completely bombed it and they have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about uh, or you know the last thing you want is somebody to come back after you had like a you know 20 minute conversation on active surveillance and they come back you know in three months or whatever and you're like wait I have prostate cancer you know and it's ah uh, like this is just it's such an easy way to make sure that like you said, you sent a message, was it received how it was received? And that's such a, a quick hack. It's so easy. Um, and I think, um, you know, personalizing it like, oh, I, you know, I, what are you going to tell your your significant other um, is such a, a way for people to conceptualize it and break it down in a, in a way that's going to be quick, too. Right. Because they're just going to tell you how they would tell their partner. Right. It's not going to be a long winded thing, but you'll be able to make sure that everything got across. Yeah, I. You know, I was guilty and still am guilty of the, the spiel and kind of the prescriptive kind of ending to conversations, which has its merits at times. But uh, after listening to you and, and being a little more open ended in, in some of the conversation, I'm, I I build in now pause and say, OK, now's a great time for a pause. Like, where yeah. are we now? Then. All right. I'm going to continue. And then where are we now? And, and yeah. uh, help me kind of meet a middle ground of making sure I'm getting information out. Um, and the teach back, I think has been, been really valuable. I tend to use my, uh, we use Epic. So I have, we have after visit summaries and I tend to use the after visit summary a lot for the next steps. Yeah. And now if I do a teach back, be like, okay, tell me what we're doing next. All right. You're right. I have act active surveillance. I'm coming back in six months in a PSA and I'm going to get an MRI in a year. And then I'm like, great. Like a magic trick. I give yeah. them the after visit summary that says, you know, the you know, exact exactly <laughs> the exact same thing. So they have it, you know, that too yeah. written down. And uh, if they don't, obviously, if they don't get the teach back, then I have the ability to kind of show them on their after visit summary where they can find it written down too. But it's yeah. that little interaction. It's the same thing. They get the same piece of paper with the same writing on it. 
but it's made it a much more powerful interaction. So I appreciate that guidance from you. Yeah, I think also that you you brought up about the sort of um, checking in, right? So like how we break information down, like people can't handle it all at once. Like the it just doesn't it just doesn't sink in. And I think that sort of breaking it down into little chunks. And, you know, we talked a little bit about um, uh, what I think is a very powerful tool that the ACH um, has, you know, been learning from them is the whole idea of this arc loop where you like asking a question and responding to their, uh, their, to whatever the feedback is. Like when you said you're checking in um, to see if they get it. And then if you have to interject more information, you tell them um, what you need to tell them and you just repeat this cycle until you feel like everything is out, um, you know, out on the table. And I think it's, it's a really good way of kind of assessing that knowledge in real time uh, and also little moments of being able to kind of, you know, build even more rapport with your patient. And the last component of mindfulness is, is obviously being non-judgmental. And I think that's where it really kind of ties into this is we're not passing judgment on how they're interpreting things or what they're taking home. We're just trying to make sure they get the message. And so yeah. keeping that kind of open mind saying, it's not, listen, they may, they don't have a medical, they definitely don't have a medical education. They may not have a college or high school education. How do we make sure in a non-judgmental way that they're understanding what they need to understand for good, for a good outcome? Yeah. I think that it, it, and when it's done in this sort of fluid way too, like people don't feel like they're getting a test. Like it's just more like, it's like, oh yeah. Like I always say that I want to make sure I did a good job. And that I think also sort of diffuses the pressure that like they have to, that this is some kind of a quiz. Um, and I, I always start with, I want to make sure I did a good job of explaining this. So why don't you tell me X, Y, Z? So it kind of, the onus is on me to give the information because I'm the expert at whatever it is we're talking about. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's not on them. It's on me. And which I think is another nice way of kind of, diffusing some of that, um, that fear or anxiety that patients might have, especially when they're already overwhelmed by whatever the diagnosis is. Right. So I think it's, it's, you, you finish on a high note. One of the other things I picked up from you is the, what else, uh, ending yeah. to the conversation. So tell, tell the audience what, what, what else means and how you use that <laughs> powerfully at the end of your, uh, well, I think it's just all about, you know, it's again, open-ended questions, right? So, you know, it, you, it's, for the same reason that patients won't, they'll, they'll pretend that they they understood what you said, right? They're, if you ask them, what do you have any more questions? Often they feel pressured to say no. Um, sometimes you have people who do, and they will say, oh, actually, yes, I have one more. But I think um, you want to be very mindful that that's an open-ended question, and by just asking what else, you're keeping it open um, so that people can, um, you know, continue to get everything out on the table. And once pe once people feel that all of their concerns are heard, you'll be able to keep moving forward. And you kind of touched on this before is that if, if some, if somebody has something on their mind, something that's nagging or, or they feel like they're not getting their point across, they're going to keep talking until they, they feel like they've been heard. Right. And this is a very nice way of just making sure everything's been out there in a very effective and efficient way. Um, and, and patients feel better too. Listen, you're not going to be able to, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert at a lot of things. Um, I'm not going to be able to address every concern that a patient has, but at least I can open up a conversation of how I can help them get the help they need for that problem. I mean, it, how often are you rounding and they're like, oh, like, oh, yes, I feel better, but 
I don't know, I got like the, I was supposed to have the no dairy tray today for, for lunch and whatever. And it starts, to, you know, but it's very easy to be like, Oh, like, is there anything else bothering you? And that's it. Okay. No problem. I'll make sure that the order is correct or we'll talk to, to nutrition or whatever it is. And that, that patient's going to feel, you know, so much better at the end of that interaction. So sometimes it'll be stuff that you're, you really can't help with, but just getting it out there and making sure people feel heard is a, is, is a huge part. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. Let's get into difficult conversations. How about tough stuff? Any, you know, what's your advice and how do you teach people how to have tough conversations? Yeah. I think you have to, the first step is you have to check your own emotion. I think that's, that's huge. Um, And I think that, you know, you, you don't want to be having a conversation when, you're all flustered and, and all of that. And, and sometimes you're not going to, you're not going to be in a position where you can step away and uh, you know, you know, really like take a moment. Like you might be in a very like acute situation where it's heated. Um, but um, recognizing how you're feeling and trying to, you know, I think for me, a big a skill that I, I use is, is noting. It's like a, just kind of like naming it what it is, which kind of takes away like a little bit of the sting of it. Like, okay. Like a, a, XYZ patient is, let's say somebody who's being uh, like combative, right? It's actually like a scary, like physical situation. Like for me, it would be like, okay, I'm, I'm scared right now. Like just, this is what this is like. And that kind of helps diffuse it for yourself. Um, and then going back to, in terms of naming emotions, like we talked earlier, like getting at what that, what is going on with that patient um, and getting it out there and, 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 and naming it. I, I, I have yet to come to a, a, a situation where that has not like taken it down a couple, at least a couple points. It's not a miracle and you're not going to like suddenly the skies aren't going to part and like the rainbows aren't going to come out necessarily all the time, but at least it diffuses it enough where you can start the dialogue. Um, and I think sometimes people just want they're, they want to be recognized for what they're feeling. Um, so I think that's the the biggest the biggest thing. Um, and this is not just for like you know difficult or scary patient uh, you know interactions. This can be just an argument you have with a like a spouse or whomever. It's just you know getting getting the emotions out there on the table um, and allowing those things to be diffused is going to make for a more effective conversation to follow for sure. Yeah. And I would say, you know, two quick plugs. I mean, this is where mindful, formal mindfulness training can really be helpful by understanding what you are experiencing at the moment can prevent you from falling into some pitfalls or escalating something that doesn't need to be escalating. Right. And how many times have we seen these interactions where two people's escalating energy just feeds off each other because they yeah. don't even realize kind of the death spiral they're putting themselves in. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that's huge. And I think that, um, you know, so much of this and the whole communication thing, like I, like I said in the beginning, is really just about like knowing yourself, being present and being mindful. Right. And that and that's it, it's, it's hard to do in some moments. Um, but I think that if we try and create those pauses um, before and you can apply this to so many things like it, it can be a, a nanosecond just in your own mind. But taking those pauses to really see where you're at and you know, evaluate what's going on with you before you sort of step in and add to the energy is, is huge. And that's like a, a, a couple second thing that you can do um, to make sure that you're not going to end up in that sort of death spiral of, of emotion. 
Yeah. And then where you'll do something that you regret or could irreparably damage a relationship. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that's important to recognize too, is that you don't have to have every conversation in the heat of the moment, right? You can, it's also very fair to say, listen, I'm really worked up about this right now. Let's talk in half an hour. Let's talk tomorrow. Let's do this. Yeah. And, yeah. Where, and where people really fall into this is with email and electronic communication. Mm, yeah. And because it's so easy to just fire back, people fire back and, yeah. and, We've all heard this, but it's worth it. Like when you have a fiery interaction electronically, I tell I tell my mentees, mentor, whatever you want to say it, write your response now. That's okay. Don't send it till the morning. Edit it. And you're gonna want to edit it before you do it. But at least it it approach like you understand the emotion you felt, you understand everything you were going through, and give yourself an opportunity to reflect on it before you go ahead and put your foot in your mouth. Oh yeah. I have a whole, I mean, I probably could clear it. I should clear it out a whole <laughs> bunch of safe drafts. I think it's, it's, I mean, with electronics, I, I mean, it creates so many barriers and effective communication as it is. Um, but yes, it's also really hard to, you know, interpret tone and like, it, it's, it's just a minefield for, uh, you know, poor communication, unfortunately. So I, I completely agree. Taking that pause there is is huge. <laughs> and, but there's something also therapeutic about writing the email sometimes. And that also helps to kind of get it out. Um, but yes, I completely agree on the do not send uh, until the morning, because I think that's a critical piece of it. I, I mean, obviously, in patient interactions, like it's not going to necessarily be so easy to kind of step away. But like, that's also an option. I, I mean, there have been plenty of scenarios. It's a little bit different in clinic. Um, sometimes it's like, okay, I don't think we're going to be able to, I don't think we're going to be able to come to any kind of agreement here, whatever it is. Like, why don't I get you set up for a follow-up appointment? You can talk X, Y, Z over, look over whatever research you want to do on your own. And then we can talk about it when you come back. Or if it's a, an inpatient, um, you know, similarly, like, okay, it seems like you're really angry right now. Like, why don't I give you some time? Um, I'll come back after lunch and we can kind of reconvene. You, There's ways to work it in. And I think another important point is, is that these are just skills to use. Like you're not, not every situation is going to end up like how you hope it will. Right. Like it's, there are going to be people who no matter what you do or how kind or compassionate or how hard you try and meet them where they are, like they're just, it's just not going to happen. And I think that's also part of the sort of self-compassion and like being kind to yourself and realizing, you know, the, how you take care of yourself as a clinician, um, because the, it's just, it, it's not, Oh, it's not your fault. And it's, it's just the way things are sometimes. And it's just, you can use these skills to create lots of, lots of beautiful interactions and great relationships, but it's not going to be a hundred percent. And it, you can't put your pressure on yourself like that to, you know, to expect that that would be the case. Um, and just being mindful of that as well, that like people are people and there are some challenging folks out there um, and you have to take care of yourself as well. Yeah. You're, you're not going to love everyone. They're not going to love you and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Why would you want that? Right. It's yeah. like, yeah. it's not, that's not, um, you know, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And yeah. that's, it's just, I think there's a lot of perfectionist personalities in our field um, that want everything to go the best way possible all the time. And I think just being really mindful that that's not always going to be the case, especially when you're dealing with different personalities. Um, and again, these are just a set of skills and things to be mindful of, but um, you know, it's not, it's, 
they're not magical. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good. So Marissa, you know, this didn't happen to you overnight. You know, you're no. not the, the guru of communication. So tell us a little bit about your personal journey. And you mentioned your yoga background and other things before. If this yeah. communication weaves through with kind of your mindfulness background, you know, feel free to to tell us. Tell us how you developed yeah. here. I think that for me, like the 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 getting into um, you know reading a lot about effective communication and like looking into the research, and then more recently um, taking the training with ACH. I think that it's it's a big part of sort of like my taking back the narrative of healthcare for myself. So I think that um, just for like reference, I, I was in private practice for, um, years after I graduated, um, from Columbia Presbyterian. And I, I was told upon my departure from residency that private practice would be my first job, but not my last. And that was a very true statement. Um, I, I just sort of thrive off of human connection. And I found that like not being in a sort of an academic environment where I had residents and students and lots of teaching opportunities and, um, in, in opportunities to engage with more people on a regular basis, I, I just wasn't um, super happy. And that led me um, over to uh, where I am now at Monty um, as my, you know, my best friend, Alexander Small happens to be a urologist here too. And I was, the, the stars aligned in such a way that, um, it, you know, it really worked out well and I've been very happy. But this aspect of communication specifically as, a, as a, a clinical interest is more just, I don't want to be like a pessimist in the, in the direction I see healthcare going, but I think that it, we've, as a, as a industry or whatever, we sort of created this environment that's just, it's not conducive to the sort of compassionate healthcare that I envisioned as like what I wanted to spend my life doing, right? And sort of taking a clinical and academic focus and interest in these things is kind of like my way of carving that back out of these scenarios that have been created where, you know, the idea of a 15 minute new patient visit to me just blows my mind, right? But this is standard now for most people. Some people get less time than that. And it's like how my curiosity in terms of how can I still be who I am, be my authentic personality and, get what I want out of my career and my workday and sort of focusing on these like soft skills has really been a way to kind of like take that back. Right. Cause I feel like at the end of the day, I don't go home tired, exhausted. Like sometimes, yes, um, there are days that are tough and difficult, but I feel like all these positive interactions, um, and seeing that develop and by using some of these skills has really been a way for, um, me to kind of get the joy back out of what I'm doing. Um, and that's kind of like how it sort of has evolved. Um, yeah. So I guess that's kind of <laughs> my yeah. story. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful story. And tell us about yoga. You still do yoga? I do. I, um, I kind of have, I've, uh, spend a little bit more time doing more like endurance sports now, which is kind of my moving meditation. Um, just, I, I still do a lot of meditation, um, but a, a little bit more focus on some other types of sports. Um, I am a certified yoga teacher, not currently teaching now, um, but yeah, it's a big part of my life. And I think it's, you have to sort of weave, whether it's yoga or, you know, whatever other kind of mindful practice you do, you have to find a way to sort of weave this in because it's tough out there. I mean, I, I really feel for anybody 
struggling in the field of medicine, uh, especially if you have a sort of compassionate leaning, it's, it's hard to kind of hold on to that. Um, and I think that, you know, maintaining the mindfulness and making sure you're taking care of yourself in those ways is really important to be able to, you know, continue to have a sort of satisfying and long career. Yeah, and people who listen to this podcast know I'm a fan of fan of the yoga, but uh, yeah. you know, as as surgeons, as physicians, I think it's one of the the best activities: physical well being, mental and emotional well being. Understanding who you are when you're going through tough yoga poses or whatever it may be helps you understand where you are when you're going through tough patient interactions or a difficult situation in the hospital sure. or a difficult situation at home. And yeah. I think there are great metaphors learned through yoga practice that help us in daily life to be more mindful and better. So once again, that's my plug for yoga. Oh, yes. I mean, I think, and I think that some people get really caught up in terms of like the idea of yoga. Um, And in terms of like my more recent kind of shift in terms of what my physical practice looks like, I think that it's, it can be so many things like yoga is just a, is a concept, right? It's not like a, a set of movements or exercises that have to be done in a certain way or an exact, um, you know, breathing practice that has to happen. It's just, it, it's an idea of finding that sort of union, right? Mind, body, spirit. And that can be done in so many ways and it doesn't have to look like a, you know, like, you know, a dancer pose for some, <laughs> like it can be so many things. Like for some people that could be trail running, right? And it's just finding that space to breathe and move and get into that flow state can be done in so many ways. So um, I think the the concept of yoga and the the idea behind it in that sense is, it's critical. I think everybody just has to sort of find that way to weave that in, um, in one way or another. Really, really well said. I have a couple of very pointed questions and then we'll, yeah. we'll get to kind of our summary and ending. You mentioned a bunch of facts. Tell us some of your favorite facts about communications. I, I love the 90 second one. Oh um, man, that's my favorite too. I think that it's, I, the, the, also the concept that like in 10 to 20 seconds, we're already interrupting people is just so mind blowing to me. And you're like, no, like, like I can't be that way. Right. But like, oh, actually it sounds like we are. And it's, um to me I think that was like the one of the biggest things I learned that was like holy mackerel like this is not like this is something I really need to pay attention to and the 90 second thing like and when you try to like practice talking for 90 seconds it's like you feel like you're talking forever so when you translate that over like to that fear that people are just going to go off the rails and like you're going to be stuck in clinic for 20 years um, you know, in, in the, it, it's, it's, it's really sort of illuminating to me, um, in terms of what our interactions are and what they can look like. Um, so I think that's definitely my favorite. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and then the other really pointed question, if people are interested in becoming better communicators formally, obviously I'll give a quick plug for you. Marissa gives a phenomenal uh, not only didactic, but could also run kind of small groups and and kind of communication sessions for people who are interested. But if people are interested in expanding their knowledge and learning or formally being trained to help yeah. others, how can they do that? I think the best um, is to go through ACH. Um, they have an, a, a tremendous amount of resources in terms of courses you can take, small group training sessions, conferences. You can read a bazillion papers that they have on the on the website. Um, and then if your institution is interested, um, there are a variety of um, 
programs that can be implemented to kind of do this on a more institutional level, like what's happening um, here at Monty currently. Um, and that's kind of been a big springboard for me and my other reading and research and other things I'm looking into in terms of like how we can be better communicators, specifically in urology. Um, and uh, so, so yes, I think that'd be like my big plug in terms of anybody you don't have to be a member. You can access those resources and take any of those formal trainings at any point. Um, I, I think put the uh, and I'll put the ACH website on the notes, uh, so people yeah. who are accessing the podcast can find that pretty easily. If you don't remember, just tell us real quick, broad strokes, what's going on at Montefiore? How? What's kind of the the institutional implementation of effective communication? What's going on now? I think that um, Montefiore, and this is really a plug for one of the best chairmen out there, Mark Schomburg, has really created a, a culture of, I think, really effective and open communication. Um, and I think that we function very much as a like a small family as a result of that. Um, and I don't think this is anything very specific in terms of you know, specific things that we do. But as you could see with our faculty retreat and, and things like that, we, we, we really spend a lot of time focusing on identifying potential weaknesses and how we can kind of grow and understand each other better. Um, and I think that is um, a culture I'm very proud to be a part of. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we're getting to that part of the podcast. Is there anything we missed? Anything you want to go over, talk about the floor is yours or ask questions, whatever you may have. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and if you don't, it's okay, too. I don't know. I feel like there's like so many nuances to just communicating, right? Um, that like, I feel like you could just chat about it all day. And, and all these, you know, there's just so many aspects to this and so many different skills for so many, like ACH is great, but there are so many different um, schools of thought in terms of, you know, personal communication and, and other skills that, you know, I would love to have opportunities to talk about. But it's, um, I think that I just want to drive home the point about the like how this can make your life better. Right. And I think that's a huge. Yes, we, we want to make sure that the patient experience is great. That's and we want everybody to have great health outcomes. That's why we're here. But such a huge component of this is like maintaining the joy in medicine. And I just want to make sure that like because I know I remember, I remember so many eye rolls that back at the, you know, in, in school and you're like, why are we getting a class on like, just being like a, a normal interactive human, right? <laughs> but we take for granted that not everybody is and pe sometimes people who think they are aren't right. And I, I always get a little self conscious in giving these talks or, you know, talking about this with colleagues, because I, I do think people start to think like, oh, like, this is like, not a waste of time, but like, Maybe we like people just come with the assumptions they already know how to communicate because they've gotten to these points in their lives. And I, I just want people to keep an open mind that this is like small, easy changes that can just do such a good job of like opening your heart in the clinical space um, and sort of, you know, bringing some of that you know, empathic and compassionate part of healthcare back into your everyday when sometimes it can feel a little bit hectic and crazy and and institutional and it doesn't have to be that way. Wow. Really, really incredible. And well said, Marissa, um, I want to thank you for spending time. This has really been a ton of fun and yeah, you're coming back on the podcast as long as we can find <laughs> some time. The, I, I learned a ton. This is a fun conversation. I think this is uh, things that people really can work on. So maybe you and I can set up uh, a little, maybe a little more pointed, almost 
like workshoppy kind of thing yeah. where we can go through some of the practical skills that people can can work on. I think there's a lot of people who would benefit from that. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of really good um, points and things that we can, in terms of sort of intersecting that that world of mindfulness and yoga and and how we can become more effective communicators through some of those practices for sure. I mean, I, that's personally something that's huge for me. Um, and I, I, you know, there's lots of ways to take that in terms of how to, you know, implement that on a regular basis. Well, awesome. Well, I'm going to summarize some of the amazing things uh, you said today. We started off by talking about how all healthcare is delivered through relationships and by effective communication, we can do a better job of of delivering healthcare. We talked about one of the big pitfalls is the assumptions that we all walk into every interaction with, whether it's based on a patient's characteristic, the diagnosis they're coming on with, and trying to step away from those assumptions. And we talked about doing that through communication and remembering that communication is a skill. These are things that we can work on, we can get better at, whether we think we're good at them or we know we're struggling. Either way, we can improve our communication skills. Some of the specific skills you talked about today, active listening, reflecting or calling out, uh, you know, identifying or naming emotions, feelings, whatever it may be. We talked about skills in clinical settings, setting an agenda with your patients, creating physical space to, to facilitate effective communication when you're delivering that, asking open-ended questions and finally assessing their understanding with a teach back and what else and what else until it's exhausted. Um, we talked a little bit about tough conversations, how to check your emotions and how we can uh, once again, control our interactions by doing that. And lastly, you said doing this will make your life better. We struggle. All of us struggle at times in medicine or whatever profession you may be in. But being a more effective communicator, specifically in a field that is based on relationships, and that's why all of us go into medicine for one reason or another, uh, this will make your life better. And I think that's such a strong message. Yes, I do. I completely agree. Thank you so much for you know giving me a platform to talk about these things. And, and tremendous thanks to ACH for sort of formalizing all of this for me because this has been just like a personal journey for so long and being able to actually um, be involved in a more formal setting has really been a great opportunity as well. Awesome. Marissa, thanks. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, you too.